again. My name is David. I'm on staff here. Uh, I get the privilege today of continuing our series uh, called The Kingdom, uh, where we're looking at uh, the parables of Jesus, different things that he said, stories he told to, to help us learn what his kingdom is like. And uh, today uh, I get the privilege of uh, teaching on the, the parable of the two debtors. And uh, that's coming out of Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in uh, verses 36 through 50. And I'm just going to read that whole thing first, and then uh, we'll kind of jump into it. So again, this is Luke 7, starting in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited him, and him is Jesus in this story, invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in in the town, who was a sinner, found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of fragrant oil and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with the hair of her head, kissing them and anointing them with the fragrant oil. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he said, say it. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So, uh, so to kind of set the scene here, I'll just kind of recap what we just read. So, so Jesus uh, gets a dinner invite to a guy's house named Simon. And Simon's a Pharisee. So if you don't know what a Pharisee is, that was just one of the Jewish religious leaders at the time. So very moral, upright, you know, good citizen kind of guy, followed all the rules. Uh, but the Pharisees historically really didn't like Jesus. And from this story, we don't really get the feeling that, that Simon's particularly fond of Jesus, but he's at, less, he's at least intellectually interested in Jesus. Even if he's just interested in trying to prove Jesus is a fraud, he's at least interested. So he's not apathetic towards Jesus. So he invites him over for dinner. And lo and behold, something crazy happens. Uh, a lady who was not invited, who's a known sinner in the town, just shows up and starts making a scene. And it would very much be a scene. You know, she's weeping. She's crying. She's actually crying on Jesus' feet and washing it with her hair, which even letting her hair down would have been seen as a, a huge faux pas in that day and age and in that time period. So she's wa- washing his feet with her hair, begins to kiss his feet, breaks open this expensive oil and anoints his feet with the oil. And she's clearly just, in the best way she knows how, showing a great amount of affection and honor to Jesus. And Simon is sitting there, and he sees this. And his response is, he's like, man, if this guy, if he was really a prophet, he would know who this is. Like, she's a sinner. So what he's effectively done is created his own criteria by which he's now, you know, excused himself from having to think Jesus is anyone special. He's basically, you know, ruled Jesus off the list. He's like, ah, you know, a prophet would have known. He's like shaking his head. And he's just disregarding, kind of disgusted probably by what he saw, but also probably a little bit smug and satisfied and being like, I knew he was a fraud. 
And uh, what happened next is great. We can read past this, but it says Simon said all that to himself. He said, you know, if he was a prophet, he would have known. He's kind of saying this to himself. So nobody heard that. But the next verse uh, in, in Luke 7:40, it says, Jesus replied to him, uh, which uh, Jesus does this a few times through the Gospels where he like replies to people's thoughts. And uh, to me, that's hilarious. Like, I think it'd be super unsettling if you were Simon. But, uh, but just, I mean, this basically, so basically Jesus is saying like, oh, like you don't think I'm a prophet? Well, you're kind of right. I'm way more than that. And in case you think I don't know who she is, in case you think I don't realize she's a sinner, I'm going to reply to your thoughts. So, so then Jesus goes ahead and, and tells a story, tells a story of the two debtors. And pretty straightforward, it seems, on the front end. He says, there's this creditor and two people owe money. One owes 500 denarii, which is a denarii was like a day's wage. So 500 of those would be more than a year's salary. So almost a year and a half. And the other person owed 50, which is a little more than a month or month and a half of salary. And he says when he forgave them both, uh, they, you know, they're both forgiven, so who's going who's gonna to love them more? And Simon you know, answers kind of the obvious way. He says, the one he forgave more. And Jesus says, hey, you got it. That's right. And then he goes to show these two debtors are you and the woman. He's talking to Simon. Like, the, you're these two debtors. And he does that by showing the way that each of them treated him. He shows how the woman, again, went above and beyond to show worship and affection and, and, and just is falling at Jesus' feet and washing his feet. And treated him like someone worthy of the greatest honor. And Simon treated Jesus kind of like anybody else. But actually, actually a little bit worse than you would even treat a regular house guest. Because he said, you didn't give me a kiss. That was just a greeting kiss. Basically like a handshake. So he didn't give him that. That was normal to do that. And he didn't even treat Jesus that well. He said, you didn't give me water for my feet. Which that was, again, normal hospitable practice. So what I want to look at today, you know, after kind of recapping that, setting the scene, is why the difference? You know, why does... You have, why do you have two people in the presence of Jesus and you have this woman who's just completely changed and clearly affected and just worshiping Jesus and you have Simon who's kind of cold, detached, maybe even a little bit irritated by the fact of what's going on in his house. So what does that woman know that Simon doesn't get? Because I think a lot of us, maybe you can relate to Simon. You know, Maybe you've always felt a little bit detached from God, a little bit cold towards God. Maybe you've always been kind of skeptical of Christianity and the only reason you're even listening today, whether it's online or, or here with us, is because you just have a few too many friends who've talked a lot about this Jesus guy and you're like, what do they know that I don't know? Maybe that's you. Or maybe you've been in church your whole life and you've just always felt a little bit, you know, like your, your relationship with Jesus is just purely intellectual. It's just kind of an intellectual interest. And you see these other Christians who are like on fire for God and they really love God and, and you're wondering like, what do they know that I don't know? Um, so today what we're going to look at is kind of that idea. We're going to look at three things that we can see in this passage, three things that the woman knew that Simon didn't know, and three things that really make the difference between just a cold, lifeless encounter with Jesus and a life-changing, peace-giving encounter with Jesus. So we're going to just jump right into that. Um, so the first thing, first thing we see that the woman understood that, that we need to grasp if we really want to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus is, number one, it's our main idea, or one of our first main ideas today, is the debt of sin. That's the first thing she understood that Simon didn't get. So on the surface, this parable looks pretty simple. It's two people owed a lot of money, or two people owed money, one owed more, one owed less. And when they were both forgiven, the one who owed more loved more. So it seems pretty simple on the surface, but I think as we dive a little bit e- deeper into it, we'll see it's a little, there's a little more there than maybe seems we, we see in those like few verses that this parable is. Because um, the, the first thing I want to point out I think is important to note, well, first it's, I guess, important to note, the woman is the one who owed 500, Simon owed 50, and Jesus makes very clear that the debt equals our sin. So that's where we get the debt of sin from. But the first thing I think is really important to point out is that both debtors in this story, they're actually in the exact same predicament. 
It said, when neither of them could pay. So really, legally speaking, even though the 500 denarii debt seems bigger, both of these people are actually in the exact same legal predicament where they're both going to be condemned and sent off to prison because they have nothing to pay towards their debt. They have no resources. Zero percent of their debt is, is what they can bring to the table, but they're forgiven. So you see they're both in the same boat, and I think that's really brilliant because while on, on the one hand the 500 debt looks bigger, by the fact that neither of them could pay, they're actually both in the same boat. And I think this is so important for us to see because it shows us that in God's kingdom, even if someone seems like they're a way worse person than you, or you feel like you're a way worse person than other people, we're all in the same boat. We all can't pay our debt. We're all in need of some major help. And, uh, and I think, you know, just to kind of illustrate this a little bit further, uh, sometimes when we talk about finances and we talk about debt, we'll use the expression, the person is drowning in debt. And I think that can kind of help us understand this picture a little bit clearer when we think about drowning, which hopefully you don't think about drowning too often. That would be <laughs> lead to a very anxious life. But <clears throat> when you think about drowning, if you do, think about this. If you were stuck underwater and you're 10 feet underwater versus being stuck underwater and you're 50 feet underwater, in both situations you're stuck, you can't swim up to the top, either way you need to be saved from being underwater or you're going to drown. The result's going to be the same. So it doesn't really make a difference. It doesn't really matter that there's more water above you. And with our sin, it's the same idea. We're all under the water line, and we all need some serious help. So that's the first thing I think that shows kind of the, maybe the, a little more depth in this parable. The second thing, it's kind of similar to that, but it's important to note that Simon didn't actually and doesn't actually owe less than the woman. And I'll actually say that maybe a, a different way. Uh, the woman doesn't need salvation more than Simon needs salvation in this story. And really the, the way to, to phrase it maybe more helpful is she's just more aware of her need of salvation than Simon is aware of his need of salvation. They both need it the same. Because otherwise, the moral of the story would be, Simon, go sin more so you'll love God more. And that's not what Jesus is telling us here. He's saying, Simon, this woman understands her sin. You don't. And I think that's why it's so important for us in this first idea to understand the debt of our sin that we have. Because Jesus is literally telling us in this story, he's saying... Your love for God is going to be directly tied to your understanding of the debt you owe, your understanding of the severity and the magnitude of the sin that you have. So if you feel like you have maybe not a whole lot of love for God, that might be why. Maybe you don't understand the magnitude of your sin, of the debt you owe. And uh, I think it could be helpful. I don't have enough time to go through like a, a super in-depth study of this, but it might be helpful just to have kind of a short piece about what sin really is. And I mean, obviously, you could spend way longer on this. You could probably write a giant book on this, more than just a couple minutes in a sermon. But um, sin is not just simply breaking a few rules. I heard a pastor phrase it this way. I thought it was kind of helpful as far as maybe like a mindset shift on what sin really is. He said, sin is a desire to live independent of God. It's to deny that everything you have is alone. It all belongs to God. And sin is to be your own master. So that's a little more maybe a little deeper. It's, it's below just breaking a few rules. So sin isn't just failure to follow a few rules. Sin is this, desi- this rejection of God's authority and the desire, to, I'm going to be my own authority in life. I'm going to live independent of God. And why that's important to notice is because we can do that through religion just as easily as we can do that through irreligion. So the, the obvious way we can try to live independent of God is through irreligion, where we essentially pretend that God doesn't exist and we can just do whatever we want. There's no higher authority I have to report to, so the highest authority is self. 
And even if you would say you're religious or you'd say you're a Christian, we can still fall into this because this is the idea of follow your heart. Or if you only make decisions based on what do you think or how do you feel, that just makes you the ultimate authority. And sometimes that might line up with what God says, but when it doesn't, you go with you and you, you side with yourself. So that's irreligion. That's the more obvious way we can do this. Um, but we can also do it through, or through religion. And this might be where a lot of us are today. You know, if you're, if you're in church or listening to a message on a Sunday morning, this might be more the boat you fall into because we can try to be independent of God by keeping the rules. Because when we keep the rules, we don't owe anyone anything. God actually owes us. We might not say it that way, but that's how we begin to think. Because we can say, hey, I've lived a pretty good life, so God owes me a good life, and he owes me good health. And when that doesn't happen, because we live on earth, we then feel like we have the right to be angry at God. And we can say, God, pay what you owe. You haven't paid your debt to me because you owe me a good life. And that's really backwards and really ugly, but we can do that so naturally. We wouldn't, we wouldn't phrase it that way. We wouldn't say it outrightly that way, but we'll believe that way because we want to be independent of God so we'll actually keep these rules to keep him at an arm's length so we don't have to depend on him. So I think that can be helpful if we, if we understand sin that way. So again, if you, if you feel kind of detached or cold towards God, or you're still wondering, like, why Why do some people seem like they're on fire for God, but I'm not? Um, Maybe, this might sound counterintuitive, but maybe it's because you need to experience your sin in a way that's more personal, and it helps you see it's more real than you've ever really noticed before. It's more of a problem than you've noticed before. So so in high school, going back in the day, it's actually getting further and further away from, I feel like I'm getting so old now, it's 14 years ago? Anyways, so um, back in high school, I was really into sports. Um, basketball specifically. I loved basketball. It was a problem. Like all my prayer requests were about basketball. I was like, we got this game coming up. I have a prayer request. So that was not even a joke. That actually happened all the time. Uh, So I was fortunate enough to go to a small private school. Uh, So I was able to play all four years on the varsity team, get a lot of playing time. And all through my my storied basketball career, uh, I had this lingering pain in my left knee. I went back as far as I can remember. My left knee would always always bother me, but it was kind of lingering. Sometimes it would be kind of a sharp pain. Sometimes it would give out, but usually it was just kind of there, kind of a dull pain. And uh, I would go to doctors, and, and they would do scans, and it wouldn't show anything, and they would just chalk it up to growing pains and, you know, send me on my way and laugh at me because I'm a wimp as they left. You know, he's just growing, and he's whining about it. So they would, they would do these scans. that wouldn't show anything. I would do surface-level things like wear knee braces. I would take ibuprofen. Um, I would ice it. I would do everything, but it was always, always kind of there. It was never unbearable, but it was always there. And uh, one day, in my, uh, my senior year of high school, that all changed. Um, so it was, it was the period right before lunch, uh, which I remember that because I really like lunch. Um, so still to this day, I'll like, make it a point to l- let people know how much I like lunch. That's why I'm telling you now. <laughs> um, but, uh, so I really like lunch. So I was sitting there in the period before lunch, waiting for class to end because I wanted to go eat. And the bell rang, and so norm- I, like normal, collected my things, and I stood up. And as I stood up and turned to leave, I felt the most severe stabbing pain in my left knee I'd ever felt. So I sat back down. Like, not even lunch could make me take another step after that pain. And uh, it was that moment where I I had thought I tore my ACL, so I was still misdiagnosing the problem, actually, because what happened was actually way weirder. And I'm going to let you in here, very vulnerable. I'm going to share a problem I have in my left knee with you guys. So what had happened was, when I stood up, a chunk of bone fell off the end of my femur into my knee joint. Yeah, that's really gross to tell a whole crowd of people. Um, I won't tell you that I have two of the bigger chunks that fell out actually in my sock drawer at home in a little cup. I'm not going to mention that because that's disgusting. Um, <clears throat> but anyways, 
So when I stood up, that happened. And what, what it ended up being, it's called an osteochondral defect on the distal end of my femur, if you want to try to say that three times fast. And what it means is there was an injury that happened probably way back before I could remember where my bones had hit together. And the doctor described it like a pothole that was broken up with broken chunks of asphalt in it. And that day, a piece fell out is what had happened. So needless to say, that day, I was confronted with the problem in my knee in a way I never had been before. It got my attention. It stopped me in my tracks. It required surgery. That didn't, I didn't know that until that day. Um, and in the same way, that's how we have to come to terms with our sin. We have to experience it in a way where it's real to us and where it stops us in our tracks and where we can no longer ignore it. Because just like that hole in my knee, well, none of you probably have that. If anyone else does, we can bond over it. It's a super rare injury. Um, but just like that hole in the knee, the, the, my knee, the, this problem of sin is there in our lives. It's there. And we can, you, I mean, even if you don't believe in sin, you've felt the effects of it. Even if it's just a lingering kind of background thing. Or some days it's maybe more apparent. It feels like a sharp stabbing pain. And we can, we can get misdiagnosed by experts. We can go see them and they'll misdiagnose the problem. We can try surface level changes. We can try surface level ways to deal with the problem. But until we actually realize the severity of the issue and experience it and are aware of it, we can't have a life-changing encounter with Jesus because we, we're like, you're not going to get surgery unless you know you need surgery. And that's why this is where we have to start. We have to understand the debt of our sin. But we can't stop here because if this was where I stopped, um, you might say, hey, I'm really good at recognizing my sin. I'm actually too good at it. And you might live your life just riddled with guilt and in really severe depression or feel like you have to hide from it because you know how, how bad it really is. So that's why the, our, our second idea is so important. Uh, because the second thing the woman understood that we need to grasp if we want to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus is, number two, uh, the cost of forgiveness. It's the second thing that we need to understand. So in Jesus' parable, he mentions the creditor graciously forgave the two debtors. And I think we can make the mistake of reading past that and thinking, oh, the debts just, like, disappeared. They were gone. Um, but that's not how forgiveness works. Like, when a debt is forgiven, the debt doesn't disappear. It's transferred. And it's transferred from the debtor to the forgiver, to the creditor, to the one who forgave. And that's exactly how it works with our sin. Because when we hear about God forgiving our sin, he's not pretending like it never happened or excusing it or just completely disappears. It was transferred from us to Jesus. That's what the cross is all about. That's what the price he was willing to pay. And that, that's the, the, the idea here of understanding the cost of our forgiveness, we, it's closely tied to that idea of the debt of our sin because you have to understand your sin to really appreciate forgiveness. But it's different. And, and here's how it's different is that while understanding the debt of our sin helps us understand our hopeless situation and helps us kind of focus on ourselves and be like, wow, that's not good. The cost of forgiveness and the availability of that forgiveness takes the focus off of us and can transform the really the impact of our sin from being this heavy weight to actually transferring it to a love for God, to a love for this forgiver, who this incredible person who would take our hopeless situation and completely transform it. So that, that understanding of that sin, you know, if, if you feel like, again, if you feel kind of cold or, or kind of detached towards God, it may be that you don't understand the cost of this forgiveness because it cost Jesus everything. It cost him his life. Like it wasn't some cheap forgiveness. It's not some cheap forgiveness that we're offered. It's, I mean, we're told in First Peter it was, we're bought with the precious blood of Christ. It's not money that, that bought our forgiveness. It's not some cheap forgiveness. Like Jesus gave his life. He was separated from the Father. He became sin in our place. Like this isn't cheap. 
So that might be why you, you don't feel a love for Jesus. You don't recognize what it really costs to forgive us. But it may be you understand the cost of it, but you don't understand the completeness of that forgiveness. Because we talk about, you know, Jesus paying the price, Jesus, you know, dying on the cross. But we, that's not the end of the story. He rose again three days later. And what that shows, the, re, the resurrection is not some peripheral Christian doctrine. That's like the central Christian doctrine is the resurrection. So if you're, if you're skeptical of Christianity, start there. Look into that. I would encourage you. That's a great place to start. But what the resurrection shows us is that, one, that debt is completely paid. Like there's nothing remaining on the balance. It doesn't say that the creditor forgave 400 of the 500 denarii and the rest was up to the debtor to pay back. It's completely paid back, and that's what the resurrection shows. Hey, that payment was good. Sin and death has no power over our Savior and no power over us because of what he's done. And it also shows, it also shows us that Jesus is so different from anyone else who's ever existed. And then that, that actually gonna, is going to kind of bring us to the, the third idea, the third thing that, that this woman recognized that we need to recognize if we want to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And that's number three, the supremacy of Jesus. So this woman really... Under, she, she understood this, I think. You can see this in the way she responded to Jesus in such a worshipful, you know, in the best way she knows how. She's worshiping him. She's showing affection. But there's one thing she does, I think, that really displays this more than anything else she did in her encounter with Jesus, and it has to do with that oil that she anointed his feet with. Um, so experts who are smarter than me say that that was almost 100% chance that was the most valuable thing that she owned. And what she did with that well, she approached Jesus and she just dumped it on his feet. And she, she says, what, what she's essentially saying there is, this used to be the most valuable thing in my life, but it's not anymore. You are. And, he say, and what she's recognizing is the supremacy of Jesus. Not that she's just you know, more committed than us or she's just, you know, she's just a harder worker than us. What she's realized is that Jesus, there's nothing that compares with knowing Jesus. So, of course, she's going to respond in this way. And I think that's something that we really need to get. And she's saying, hey, that you're the most powerful thing. Because in, in most, your most precious and most perfect, like the, the most, um, what word am I looking for? The most valuable thing. <laughs> but, uh, but so like whenever we, like you, she's reacting to him and treating him in a way like no one else would ever be treated. Because a lot of times we can treat Jesus like Simon treats Jesus. Where we're just, you know, he's just maybe, we're just going to interested in him. We're going to check him out, see if he can help our life out. You know, we'll just kind of add him to a, a list of life improvements. You know, like I got diets and exercise classes. I have, you know, self-improvement books. I take some continuing education courses. Oh, and Jesus, he's there too. You know, he helps out. But so in religion, we're, we're using Jesus to just reach an end that we're trying to, to get to, you know, whether that's fulfillment or purpose or whatever. We're just trying to use Jesus to get there. Whereas in Christianity, like Jesus is what we want. He's the end goal there. So that's what she realizes. And um, she's recognizing that he's not going to be treated like anyone else. Because when we really think about it, like you can't just treat Jesus like anybody else. And when we're really honest about it, you either have to treat him like who he claimed to be, you know, the one who can forgive sins, the creator, the, you know, sustainer, God in the flesh, or you have to treat him like a liar or a lunatic. Like you can't do this in-between thing that we so often like to do where we just treat him as a nice guy or a good teacher because he can't be that. He, even in this story, he claimed to forgive sins. Like he's either wrong or he's Lord. And I feel like we have to really wrestle with that. We really have to consider that because <clears throat> this woman is in the presence of Jesus and she's worshiping. 
And Simon is literally sitting in the presence of Jesus and he sees him as a, as a fraud. He sees him as a, a failed prophet, maybe a teacher. So what this shows us is that we can literally be sitting in the presence of Jesus and we can miss it. And I think that's so important for us to consider. You, know, you have to think through for yourself, you know, who is Jesus? Like, who do you say he is? Like, if you've been in church your whole life, you might think he's cool, but have you ever actually surrendered to him? Have you ever actually made him the Lord of your life? Are you still trying to live independent of him? And any time that, that his word comes in contact and goes against what you think, you just go with what you think. Like, have you, is that really your Lord if that's how you treat him? You know, or, or is he someone who you, you know, you just kind of see as, oh, he's kind of nice, nice teacher. You know, he just has some good things to say. You know, maybe he was a prophet. I don't really know. You know, like, who is Jesus to you? Like, we can't skip past that question. Because he really is the only one who is willing and who is able to take this debt of sin that we have and to forgive it fully and to offer a peace because he's not just another person. Like Jesus can't be seen as just another person. So who is he to you? Because he was not just able to do it, but he was willing. You know, he was, he did that out of love for you and for me. And I think we really have to let that impact us. Like really dwell on that. Like has anyone else really ever loved you that way? And I'm actually, I'm going to call up the, the worship team. We're, we'll close down here. Um, just uh, want to close down looking at this, this idea that, just kind of recapping, you know, like it's through the realization of how much we owe, of this debt of sin that we have, that we then really appreciate the forgiveness that's offered here. You know, you're going to respond differently to someone offering debt forgiveness when you understand you actually have a debt. You're going to respond differently to that declaration that someone has forgiven your sins when you understand you actually have sins. And it's through that realization that we're able to then have the humility and the boldness to, like this woman, run up to Jesus' feet and say, hey, I'm, I'm dependent on you. You are the most valuable thing. You are my Lord. And I just want to just close out today by looking at the last three uh, statements that Jesus made to this woman, three definitive statements. He said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And if you put your faith in Jesus, if you're depending on him, those three statements are true of you. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. You can go in peace. And I don't know about you, but there's not like a like an epidemic of peace right now or inner peace in our world or people haven't figured out how to get peace. Jesus told this woman to go in peace and she was still alive. She wasn't resting in peace. She wasn't dead. She was alive. And he said, go in peace. And I think we can so easily forget this. If you've been a Christian for 40 years, we can forget the gospel. We can forget how much we need forgiveness. We can forget how much it costs to forgive us and how complete that forgiveness is. And when we forget that, when we forget the gospel, we can be more like Simon. And we can start to twist those three statements Jesus said, and they can become lies in our mind where it's, your sins need to be hidden. And we can start to believe that you need to work to save yourself. You need to achieve your salvation. And we can start to believe uh, good luck finding peace. But what Jesus told this woman, it's true of you and it's true of me if we put our faith in Jesus. It's true of us no matter what, that your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you and you can go in peace. And that's only in Jesus. But if, it, if your faith is in Jesus, that's a sure thing. Those weren't contingent statements. They weren't contingent on anything the woman did. He's telling her, your faith has saved you. You can go in peace. So I just want to encourage you. I, I think we've had a lot of parables we've looked at that have been very sobering where we need to look and consider, do we really know Jesus? And I think that's good. We need to consider that. 
But if you do know Jesus, you don't have to be worried about whether or not his payment was good or whether or not you really are forgiven or whether or not you really can go in peace because you can. And I just want to encourage you, whether you've never put your faith in Jesus or whether you've just kind of forgotten the gospel, I just want to encourage you, trust him. Like Jesus is trustworthy. And if you depend on him, he's never going to let you down. I'm just going to pray for us and I'll close this out today. Father, we just we just ask that uh, we would see you more for who you really are, that we would understand our need for you, that we would understand the lengths you were going to, going through and that you decided to go through to reach us, to forgive us, to make forgiveness available. And God, I just pray you'd help us to see you for what you really are. You're the most valuable thing ever most valuable person ever. There's nothing else we could pursue, nothing else that we could do that would, that compares with you. And I just pray that you'd help us to really know that. It wouldn't just be something we say, it'd be something we, we experience and we know. I pray that for all of us. And uh, God, we just thank you for the way you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.